Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And we are three friends who meet over the internet to talk about the movies we've been watching separately, and then we all get on the same page with a movie that we watch together at the end. I have it here in my notes that um, Allie has gone feral in the woods, and also Boomer is a country music superstar now. Wow. I don't know how much either of y'all <laughs> want to explain those things, but uh, that's what I've written down that's been going on in your lives. Um, I wouldn't call myself a superstar, and I also <laughs> am humble enough to go second. Allie, why don't you talk about ferality and oh, uh, yeah. rurality? So yeah, ferality and you. I had a big like family tragedy and then um, came back home and decided I'm going to go to the woods. Uh, I have a friend who currently, due to landlord issues is living out of their van with their kitten and they've been back and forth uh in the woods due to like heat waves so i was like i'm going to the woods with y'all and i had a gay old time in the woods um (laughs) i learned how to build a fire despite the fact that i like go camping by myself sometimes i just i never build a fire because i'm vaguely afraid of burning down the entire woods but i learned how to build a fire we cooked curry over the campfire which was very exciting i saw a shooting star for the first time in my life hell yeah it was amazing yeah slept in a tent got eaten by bugs went on some hikes and saw spectacular views of mount st helens so it was very nice i did manage to also watch some movies in between there how did they compete with the shooting star? What's what's better, movies or the majesty of nature? Oof, that's a that's a loaded <laughs> question because the feral side of me is like nature, <laughs> but the side of me that does like sleeping in a real bed is like, well, movies are pretty sweet because you have a couch and you're not getting eaten by bugs unless it's outside. So yeah, it depends on the mood, but I. I don't know. I'm going to have to go with the stars because it's been so long <laughs> since I've been out of the city and it hasn't been cloudy. There's so many stars, y'all. I don't know if you know this. I'm not prepared to do a stargazing podcast because, yeah, that milky haze over New Orleans does not allow me to see many of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fair. Uh, I live in the very cloudy Pacific Northwest, so it was very exciting that I got a couple of clear nights. But I did see a couple of classics for the first time ever. I saw First Blood for the first time ever. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah! I wasn't expecting to like it so much, and I've been avoiding watching it for so long just because I was like, oh, it's going to be macho bullshit and not even like in the fun way. But no, it's uh, actually pretty great. And also very ACAB, so I was into that. Oh, yeah. If you want to see a movie where a bunch of cops get shot and beaten up, uh, that's a great one. (laughs) Yeah, a bunch of cops get shot, beaten up, and they're terrible and totally deserve it. Yep. It's great. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think about Rambo, are actually thinking about First Blood Part 2, like when he goes back to vietnam to like rescue pow's or something Mm. but the first one is just him as like a drifter in a small town just waging war on cops yes it's very thrilling i really really enjoyed it and i also enjoyed like all of the 
survivalist like details there were like this guy believably knows how to live off of the woods and build traps and all of these things like it wasn't poorly thought up you know just put on screen like oh here's a trap you just like you actually see him like building this stuff and you're like thank you movie for teaching me how to build a spike pit to trap a couple cops so yeah I, I really liked it I feel weird for having avoided it so long but I don't know. I don't know a lot of, like, very into action movie people, so I think I'm the only one of my surrounding folks that are like, yeah! Explosions! I know you were talking about, you know, not watching it because it seemed macho. Yeah. And usually I am that way, except when it comes to action movies. Like, Yes! As a genre, it's kind of, like, so macho that it's camp. Mm -hmm. Like, it's such a ridiculous caricature of masculinity that... It's the same thrill I get from professional wrestling. Yeah. It's just like a cartoonish exaggeration of it. And I think some of the Rambo movies are like that, especially though uh, Commando with Schwarzenegger is like the perfect example of that. I think, you know, the idea that really got to me is, you know, people who are fans of Rambo do not match the movie of Rambo. Like people who are fans of Sylvester Stallone movies are not, I don't know. They're not internalizing the themes of the movies, it feels like, in some ways. But I feel that way, weirdly enough, about like a lot of like classic American action films where I'm like, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this, but I'll watch it. And then I really enjoy it. Well, it doesn't help that as the sequels went along, like the third one is like very pro Desert Storm oh, warfare. Lord. And then the fifth one is like straight-up racist, border drug deal, like, drug smuggling stuff. Even the people who write Rambo movies, a.k.a. Sylvester Stallone himself, have kind of lost the thread, politically speaking, over the years. Yeah, so I think that's really what soured me on the idea of watching it, but, you know, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's like that way a lot, even though, you know, I love things like Face Off and Point Break and... I mean, I made everybody watch Hard Boiled for the movie of the month. So oh, it's like, classic. yeah, it's like, I love all of these things, but then it comes to like, you know, some action movie from the 80s and I'm like, oh, am I going to like that? And then I'm like, Predator is the best. I love the Predator <laughs> because I love the character, the Predator, but that's a whole other thing. The other classic that was a first time watch that I really really enjoyed like a lot it is great i can't believe i didn't see it till recently but dirty dancing oh yeah another classic yeah i loved it <laughs> another movie with a hot button political issue that uh, kind of gets forgotten as yes! people remember the dancing and not the like offstage uh drama yeah something that gets forgotten about is it's very pro-choice message it's amazing And also, there's this scene that is absolutely freaking incredible, where she's talking to the scumbag that knocks the girl up, and he, like, tries to hand her a copy of Atlas Shrugged, (laughs) and she, like, gives it back to him and then dumps a pitcher of water on him. And I'm like, I love this movie. (laughs) This is so good. So I do think that is one that people also ignore the politics of but who knows the only people i know who really are into it have already mentioned the abortion thing like a billion times so 
I'm sure there's somebody's mom out there that's just like, the only thing she got out of it was how hot Patrick Swayze is. Which is fair, but... I mean, it's the kind of thing where, like, the iconography you remember is, like, that big dance scene at the end. So maybe if you haven't seen it in, like, 20, 30 years, like, what it's actually about just kind of drifts away out of your mind. Yeah. I'm thinking also of, like, people love Saturday Night Fever and think of it as, like, a fun disco movie when it's, like, really fucked up and dark and sour. (laughs) Like, it's not a fun movie where you just watch John Travolta dance around for two hours, but... I mean, that kind of just sounds like the surroundings of disco so it works out yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so this wasn't a first time watch but it was my first time in i don't know 20 years since i've seen it but i rewatched speed also a classic also loved it might be like one of the few movies that i really understand the sandra bullock hype in oh yeah she's adorable in that it helps that she's fully in love with Keanu Reeves and you can see it in her eyes. Yes. Like, she's just like in awe of him. There's a lot in that movie that is cast so well. Like Dennis Hopper as the bomber. You could not pick a better like unhinged person for that. You know a movie is well cast when you have Beth Grant just hanging out on the bus. Yes. Chiming in from time to time. Yes. <laughs> I was like, it's Muffin Buffalo from pushing daisies but also she's just great (laughs) she's in a lot of things but i i will forever know her as muffin buffalo then the uh next kind of classic that i don't know if everybody counts this as a classic but they probably should is francis ford coppola's brand stoker's dracula (laughs) which is the only way i want to refer to it i have the same feelings about um Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. (laughs) Yes, I have the same feelings about that. I really, really, really liked it. I thought it was great. Another movie that I'm like, I really like the way this is cast, but I also really like that it was filmed very much like an older movie and had a lot of like Nosferatu references and, you know, looked and felt like it came straight out of, you know, the 30s and 40s. I love the scene where there's the train and the journal. And I don't know if you've ever seen the behind the scenes for that, but they built like a very small train and a very big book. Like that's all done in camera. Oh my God. That's amazing. Truly an amazing thing. It's like, there's so much of that in there where I personally don't love that movie that much, but I am always impressed by it. Yeah. Cause I feel like, Maybe I'm of the age and generation where we like to like sometimes laugh off classic directors' movies, but sometimes I'm just like, wait, Francis Ford Coppola is actually really good at movies. Is he though? He I is. Don't know. <laughs> I really don't care about him. I I would love to rewatch this because I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I think you would but like in general. It. Like I like rewatch like Apocalypse Now or like The Godfather, and I'm like. I don't know. It just doesn't speak to me. Much much more into his daughter's movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you would really like this one, Brandon. I believe it. I think it's it's way more your vibe than Apocalypse Now, for sure. I like Peggy Sue got married for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not his usual yeah. auteur vision. No, it's it's not. But yeah, Brandon, I think I think it's worth a rewatch for you. I think you'll yeah. you'll really appreciate it. 
the um iconography of uh, Gary Oldman and that makeup is like oh. you know burned in my brain from when I was a kid. It's perfect. Yeah, he looks great with the two buns on his head. The Mr. Burns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Boomer, what's this about you being into country and western music now, y'all? Uh, well, as a long-time listeners may remember that my roommate of a few years, Nikki, he used to have a comedy show on the local radio here. Uh, and I would frequently join him. We did a lot of really fun sketches that I remember very fondly. And we have some recordings, but none of them are online. So sorry, uh, the greater world. If you weren't living in Austin in 2018, listening to the radio, uh, you're out of luck. But in addition to sort of some of the game shows that we used to do that he hosted and wrote, I mean, this was, you know, not just Nikki, but it was mostly Nikki and the rest of us, you know, were around. But one day we decided to try and make up uh, country songs for the show. And I sort of grew up inside of a jukebox in a Waffle House in Macomb, Mississippi, (laughs) whereas the rest of them do not have that strong, intimate connection to country and Western music that I do. So, you know, doing sort of parody country music can be very simple and easy uh, because when you are doing a satire of certain beliefs that are very simplistic, it can be very simple. But what I think was never quite understood by the others was like, you know, I won't explicitly say that country music is racist. It's frequently not. Um, The outlaws were not racists, you know, none of that. That's a very common sort of post 9-11 element of country music is that it, it's rarely out and out racist in the present day. What you have is this sort of alluding to the good old days. That's really like part of the charm of it for people who have regressive ideals. So Angus T. Ambrose Jr. was this character <laughs> who was born out of those sort of writing sessions where Nikki would play a tune and I would just come up with sort of a an off-the-cuff country music song. So we had songs about um, learning about love from The Preacher's Goat. There was a song that was specifically kind of a parody of Strawberry Wine, where it's someone recounting their first intimate encounter. But as the details emerge over the course of the song, it becomes really clear that the other person was not an itinerant farmhand, but was in fact a scarecrow. There was one about having to leave your abusive husband, despite the fact that you still love him and he is a John Deere tractor, (laughs) (laughs) which we got a lot of mileage out of belt on that one. So you're the Chuck Tingle of country. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't, I would never, I could barely touch the hem of Mr. Tingle's garment. Oh, but if I could touch the hem of his garment. Um, (laughs) But one of the ones that we did on the radio and then even at parties a couple of times was one that I, the long title is one for sorrow, two for joy, pink is for girls and I'm a man, damn it. But the chorus is essentially over and over again. Baptize me in moonshine like my pappy would want it. If you hadn't followed mama down that well. 
Mama, she's up there in the clouds, and Papa, he's a burning in hell. Yeehaw! <laughs> and so that was one that everybody really liked. And he's doing a live show on local public access now. So he's doing like TV sketches and stuff. And so there was one that they were putting together as sort of like a funeral for America <laughs> for the 4th of July. So Angus T. Ambrose put in an appearance because what they do is they'll do the sketches. And of course, between the sketches, they'll play the pre-recorded music segments while they strike the set and reset up. So uh, the person who recorded it, and this is a part of the Austin Film Society network. Like this is something that Linklater has sponsored is like really great equipment for a local public access TV station. And so I got to participate in that and reprise my role as Angus T. Ambrose Jr. And there were some videos that ended up on Instagram and I did send them to the Swamp Flicks account because I was like, look at this thing that I did. So yeah, that's um, really that's cool. part of what I've been up to. Thank you. That is really great. I may be able to locate the entire episode on YouTube, in which case I will share it with y'all and if it ends up on the swamp flicks website well so it goes i would love to post that <laughs> yeah even though i have spent the entirety of this using my real name while also trying to pretend like it would be impossible to dox me i guess we're at a point where dox me i guess <laughs> now that i'm gonna know now that everybody's gonna know what i look like that's fine i guess i'll, I'll talk about what i've been watching i, I didn't i've not watched a whole lot the Cohen Brothers Summer continues. I have now watched Hudsucker Proxy, which is another one that I had never seen. It's fun. It's cute. Yeah. It's like yeah. their cutest one. Although I do I would agree. always say like, you know, for kids, like all the time for some reason, like it's one of the ones <laughs> I quote a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I think that Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie is doing like a His Girl Friday kind of thing and she's so good at it she's mm -hmm. so good at it that it's sort of hypnotic and at times you get to a point where you're kind of having trouble following what she's talking about yeah i it's it's very cute i agree it's it took me a while to kind of start to enjoy it and then it has that weird um magical realism thing that happens at the yes. end sort yeah. of like at the end of barton fink but instead of it being hellish it's kind of like it almost feels weirdly like Christmassy, like the snowing and the angel and the suicide attempt all have a very like it's a wonderful, wonderful life, life, yeah, kind of thing going on. So that's interesting. Paul Newman is great in it. John Mahoney is great in it. I wouldn't say it's my favorite. Uh, I'd say it's probably of all of them that I've ever seen, maybe my least favorite, other than Blood Simple. But that doesn't mean it's bad. It just, I, it was a little bit more difficult for me to get through that one because of sort of the, nah, yeah, nah, nah, of it all, the transatlantic accent, fast talkingness <laughs> of the whole thing just kind of didn't, it didn't quite work for me. But I do agree that it's very cute and I really liked the last half hour or so. And then also, this is a movie that I have heard a lot about read a lot about mentioned a lot of times because you know going back to some of my earliest writings for swamp flicks i would always refer back to flick chick who was mason mcdonough 
Uh, she's a film critic who is fairly well known by her you know real name now she literally wrote the book on argento many many years ago when i was but a wee thing and the internet was a wild and untamed place uh she had a column every week on the tv guide website called ask flick chick where people would ask her oh i remember this specific detail from this movie what was it and it was shocking how frequently the answers were Legend of Boggy Creek, and also Bad Ronald, <laughs> which I finally managed to track down a copy of, and I watched, and it is really something. Is this the uh, one where it falls in the exact subgenre of horror movies, where we never reveal what the twist is because they all share the same twist, and then once you know it, it kind of spoils all of them <laughs> in, a, in a blockchain? Yes, but in this movie, you're never meant to believe that it's it's not a boy in the walls. <laughs> All right. <laughs> There's always a motherfucker living in the walls. Yeah, you know that it's a boy in the walls for a long time. And he's not even really in the walls. He's in like one room. But it is sort of the platonic ideal of a boy in the walls movie. <laughs> um, it came out in 1974. It was a TV movie. It's very short. It's 75 minutes. Which is shocking because Ronald doesn't actually go behind the walls until very late in this very short run of a film. Uh, what happens is Ronald is a nerd. He lives with his divorced mother. And even though in 1974 that was actually fairly common, it still is doing that thing that TV shows in the 70s did where it pretended like that made children weird or... Uh, meant something was wrong with the parent or whatever. So Ronald has been raised by the single mom. He has a crush on a popular girl at school after his like, you know, birthday where his mom gives him cake and art supplies for him to make illustrations for this fantasy story in his head. He goes to visit the home of this girl. They all tease him. She's have, she has like her brother there and, other like popular kids and so they run him off and as he leaves he comes across this uh classmate's younger sister and uh she mocks and teases him and he does not react well and then he kills her accidentally but also like yikesily like i always <laughs> kind of assumed from the plot description that maybe he just like pushed her and she fell but he like he kind of grabs her by the neck and then pushes her. Oh, it was wow. actually Oof. surprisingly graphic to see, which apparently the novel that the the movie was based on was like VC Andrews level, you know, not good. But from there, you know, he comes home and he tells his mother that he buried the body out of like panic. And she's like, oh, no, if you hadn't buried the body, then we could go to the police and we could tell them it was an accident. But now they'll know you're guilty. So very quickly go into this like downstairs bedroom and we'll put up sheetrock and wallpaper over it and we'll basically wall you up in this bathroom where you can still sleep you know like you do and there's also like a trap like a like a door in the pantry where he crawls down into the pantry to get in and out of the room and so his mother's like we're just gonna have to relax for a bit until the heat blows over i guess um and then the mother has to go in for a minor surgery, but dies on the operating table. And the house ends up getting sold to this family with three girls who are like, oh, we'll spruce this place up. Even though they find it very puzzling that a 
house with four bedrooms only has one bathroom. And so with his mother there, Ronald remains some retains some sense of normalcy. He does his homework, he does his exercises. But over the course of the movie, he becomes completely like covered in oil and grease and paint and is living behind the walls and like becomes convinced that the youngest daughter in this family is like the princess from his fantasy story. So it has this element of being like very dated and that like, oh, anyone who is mildly socially maladjusted is just a serial killer in waiting, as well as like, oh, he'll definitely like stop being able to tell the difference between fantasy and reality because he was already a nerd element to it. But it was actually pretty great. And it was, uh, well, I won't say great, but it was good. And it definitely had some really interesting, fascinating, like cinematic techniques and choices that you wouldn't have thought you would see in like a 70s TV movie. So like, for instance, one of the things that he does is so that the light from his room doesn't leak out, he keeps a piece of painter's tape over the holes that is drilled in the walls. And then he only takes them off whenever he's going to like look out into the room. And so he ends up getting into a fight with the brother of the dead girl who's dating the oldest sister uh, that's moved into the house. And so the tape gets removed and there's like a really great shot of the middle sister sort of like walking up to discover this hole with just like this one tiny point of light on her eye. It's like a really cool shot. But in general, I can see why this is a movie that like haunted people. And for 75 minutes, it's exactly the length of a plane ride, um, like a short <laughs> one, if you're if you're just going a short distance. So, you know, uh, find it somewhere, maybe maybe use a VPN and get it somehow and put it on your phone and then watch it when you're flying and it'll make the time just fly by. And then the last movie that I saw, and it was the best movie that I saw, and I'll say it, it's a movie I've seen probably a hundred times. And even though I'm not generally a sports movie person, I think that this is a pretty perfect movie. It's The Sandlot. I'm going to go ahead and go on record and say that I think The Sandlot is a queer film insofar as it is about a boy who clearly has no talent for the other like masculine things that the other kids in his neighborhood do and that he finds acceptance within this group through his like very obvious crush on an older boy who is nice to him Hmm. i buy it yeah yeah no objections okay i guess motion carries yeah I need a gavel to join the bell uh, yes. sound effects. <laughs> Motion carries. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, most sports films generally reinforce like certain exceptionalism, manifest destiny type narratives because it's America's pastime. It's America's purest sport or, or whatever. So, you know, you have things like um, these sports movies, uh, not just baseball, but mostly baseball. They really love to center around recitations of jingoism and there is an element of that in this movie where they have their like fourth of july night game because it's the only the only day where they can play at night because of the fireworks and then they all end up being enamored with the fireworks during the ray charles version of the uh, national anthem but other than that it's a very it's a story that's you know about being an outcast and a loner and he 
yes, becomes accepted by being better at baseball, but he's really kind of ushered into this group by this older boy who has a soft spot for him, who I'm sure was the subject of many childhood crushes, um, (laughs) both within and without the movie. Benny Rodriguez, you know, there's this sort of like older boy mentorship happening that makes him come out of his shell and, you know, ultimately repairs his relationship with his father. But I also think that even without that lens, it's still a pretty perfectly written movie. It's very well structured. There's not a moment of wasted time in it. There's not, uh, it's a kind of movie that almost doesn't seem to exist anymore because it was a movie made for families, not teenagers, not parents and not like young children. You know, it's, it's sort of from this lost era where, you know, we don't even really have a lot of family television anymore. Everyone in a house has their own little screen and their own little device and everybody's segregated off and consuming media that has been audience tested to death for them and only them. Whereas there used to be, you know, family sitcoms and movies for families where for the most part, I remember this being thought of as a kid's movie that was like very safe and simple and you would watch it on a rainy day. But there's an awful lot of like nostalgia in it and things that only adults would get for the adults in the audience so i'm gonna go ahead and and give sandlot a movie that's almost 30 years old a rubber stamp from me that it's possibly one of the most perfect films ever made it's kind of amazing how many like little moments i remember from it considering that i haven't seen it since i was a small child because like i don't know i feel like movies kind of lost that pacing where not everything has to actually advance the plot forward like it's okay to just kind of like sit in like in a quirky exchange between two characters um and because of that there's a lot of like catchphrases and like images that i can conjure in my mind that you know have nothing to do with like the main story that you were just talking about even like there's a lot of little side characters in their like baseball team and then i'm thinking of that but also somehow movies are so plot focused now and also like way longer so, like, I don't know how that happened where, like, there's no room for little character asides and still the movies are coming in at over two hours long. So it sounds like a lean little movie, too. Yeah. Everything else. Well, Brandon, what have you been watching? Yeah, Brandon. Have you become feral and or a country music star? While have y'all been watching these, like, baseball movies and Rambo and doing tough guy country characters, I have been watching a lot of costume dramas. In the past couple weeks, I got started on this kick because we went to see the new Downton Abbey movie in the theater. And I will not bore y'all too much with this because I know neither of y'all watched that show. It's a very funny soap opera. Like, it's got some good emotional stuff to it, but also every character is just funny and delivers great zingers. And um, since the show ended, they've had two movies now. The new one's called A New Era. And in the movies, they've even kind of like brushed a lot of the drama to the side. Um, so that it's like almost straight jokes the whole time. And I was just thinking watching the new one with a crowd that was like very alive, which happened the first time I saw Downton Abbey in the theater. Like a butler will drop a plate during a really important dinner and everyone's like hooting and hollering in the theater. Like, woo, 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 woo. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it's like a very like electric crowd. So they're just like really, f- yeah. really fun. They're really like crowd servicey at this point where uh, they just like deliver the hits. 
and everyone's happy to see all these characters again. And then I guess in two years I'll watch them again. But like, it's so funny how I, in the theater watching this, the entire runtime, I was either laughing or crying. And now that it's over, I look back and I'm like, that was pretty good. As if I had just watched an episode of a TV show. And I wouldn't like consider putting this like among like my favorite movies of the year or something. Even though I got a full emotional experience watching it and um, connecting with the crowd and everything else. So I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's snobbery on my part or if it just feels so much like TV and like uh, another episode in this like saga that I've watched seven seasons of that um, I'm just like excluding it from like a movies list. (laughs) But uh, if you're a fan of the show, I thought the new one was very fun. Um, And it also sent me on a spiral of costume dramas. I watched a new one from this year called Mothering Sunday that is only significant because it's very raunchy in a way that I did not expect. Like the entire plot is kind of hinged to this one sexual encounter where this maid and a wealthy man um, and the only like eligible bachelor post World War One in this like small town. So it's like kind of a big deal that he's having his heart stolen by a maid because, you know, obviously that relationship's not going to work out. This is a British costume drama. Um, they have, like, their final tryst in, like, his country mansion um, before they're going to break up. And the movie kind of lingers on all the, like, details of this final sexual adventure and then sketches out the woman, the maid's life in the years before and the years after that encounter and by like sexual details i'm talking like well first of all you see the guy's dick a bunch which i feel like is usually obscured by bed sheets in these and then second of all there's like multiple scenes where characters both observe and then discuss cum stains on bed sheets yeah that's a rarity yeah like for a bbc funded movie starring these people that you're used to seeing like on like the crown and shit like it's it was just really jarring like how willing it was to get in like the nitty-gritty like biological details of sex there's it reminds me of um since it's a british period uh costume piece it makes me think of that mitchell and webb sketch where um the blonde one. Oh my god, I'm blanking on which one is which. I'm having like a hard time. I'm not going to pretend. The blonde one is playing Queen Victoria, and they like exchange a tree with some ambassador, and she's like, "Do you think it smells of cum?" <laughs> we can't tell them that this gift smells of cum, Queen. Anyway, that's that's my contribution. Go on. We were talking about cum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the new cum movie is called Mothering Sunday. Uh, I'm I'm making it sound maybe better than it actually is. Like uh, the the main actor is Odessa Young, who is in Shirley and she's very good. Who was she in Shirley? Was she, she's the... the younger one who like falls under okay. Elizabeth Moss's wings and is crushed by them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So she's very good. And all of the individual exchanges between the characters are like compelling, but the movie does this kind of like, Lucy goosey editing style where like it'll just jump to different time periods in her life and just details without really giving you an anchor so like it took me about 30 or 40 minutes to get straight like who people are when they are who they are to each other like it it took me way too long to actually get my bearings so like maybe they pushed the uh you know 
dreamy editing stuff a little too much, but it was still a, a pretty solid, you know, post-war romance with some <laughs> very uh, striking sexual detail that you're not used to seeing in that kind of film. I also watched a couple older ones, uh, Far From the Madding Crowd from 2015, the more recent adaptation. It was Carrie Mulligan starring in this one. What I liked about it is usually in costume dramas like this, especially the more literary ones, the main conflict is like the central heroine has two men to choose from. She has the one that looks really good on paper, like he's like settled and wealthy and like will offer her a good life, but she doesn't really love him. And then she has the one that feels right in her heart, who is like actually like handsome and noble and not of like wealthy birth, but like would love her forever if they hooked up. And then the whole conflict is usually like choosing between those two bows. This one does that, but throws in this like wild card dandy character, like almost an hour into it that just fucks everything up. (laughs) Like there's this tension between the wealthy guy and the humble farmer that she's in love with. And then this fucking third character comes in. Who's like just a handsome soldier and obviously a fuck boy and just fucks everything up for everyone. And it's a Thomas Hardy novel it's adapted from, so it really gets, like, painful. Like, he, he really, like, twists the knife as much as he can uh, in that conflict. I don't know if it's a great adaptation of that novel because it feels like decades and decades worth of plot is just sort of, like, streamlined to the point where it's, like, a video game run-through, like, speed-through. Just, like, plot point after plot point after plot point in, like, rapid succession. And the movie is two hours long. Uh, so maybe it's like a very difficult book to adapt into and condense into a single feature, but, um, I really liked the character dynamics between the four main characters. And because I've been watching a lot of costume dramas, I've watched my first Merchant Ivory film. Oh, which one did you decide? Which one did you decide would be your, your cherry, uh, popper? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, that's good. (laughs) I've had my cherry popped in many ways over the years. Um, and this one I went for... A Room with a View, which I think is the one that made the famous. Oh, that's a good choice. It's not what I expected. Like, what do you think of when you think of Merchant Ivory in general? <laughs> I, I think of the remains of the day. Yeah. With, with Anthony Hopkins slowly abiding his, you know, fellow servants' love that they can never express because they are but lowly in stature. And also there's a backdrop of fascism in Europe. Because there always is. Yeah. I kind of assumed that they were all very, like, solemn and stately like that one. Like, very, like, emotionally reserved and just, like, formal. Um, Even the title cards for A Room with a View look like formal invitations to a nice banquet. But the movie itself is actually kind of a rom-com, which I did not expect. Like, uh, you got a young Helena Bottom Carter is on vacation with her cousin, uh, who's old enough to be her aunt, played by Maggie Smith who is uh, trying to keep her out of trouble, like making sure she's not alone with men while she's um, vacationing in Florence. And right away, there's like a um, really ridiculous conversation among several people at this hotel in Florence about the gender dynamics of who should get a room with a view, which almost felt like an SNL parody written by people who had not watched the movie, but like had seen the trailer. Like just all these like British people uh, saying a room with a view a bunch of times over and over again. Um, while there, she has a kiss with Julian Sands, the world's most charismatic actor that we all love so much. 
he's a block of wood as always in this not my beloved uh phantom of the opera julian sands <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> boxing helena as well awful yeah. in that <laughs> more like julian sands stone okay please continue <laughs> You could replace him with a cardboard cutout of like Fabio in any movie, and it would be improved like two hundred percent instantly. Uh, I can't, I can't disagree. She goes back to her home and um, reconnects with the neighbor who she should be marrying, the guy who looks good on paper, like I was saying earlier, um, who's played by Daniel Day Lewis, who is what makes this movie great. He is a dandy. He's going for full comedy. Like, you hate his guts. You cannot stand spending 10 seconds in his slimy presence. Um, and he is fucking hilarious. Like, this is the most fun Daniel Day-Lewis performance I've ever seen. Including There Will Be Blood in that contention. And then, you know, the two men fight their way inside of her heart back and forth. While a bunch of quirky side characters have a bunch of, like, cute moments. Including, like, Judy Dench and um, a bunch of other, like... British actors you've seen in a hundred different things. So I don't know. I've been on a, I've been on a costume drama adventure in the past couple weeks. I, I don't know if it's going to end anytime soon, but I've been enjoying living in that world. And kind of like Ali was saying about action movies, like I know for a fact that there are a lot of people who watch a lot of these, but it's not like horror and sci-fi where there are like conventions. And, yeah. You know, it's so weird to, like, to me. Your love for it. Because like, the Jane Austen love is especially strong, you know? It's very weird to me that there isn't. Maybe there's, like, a booth at the Ren Fair we don't know about where people yeah. are, like, well, you know, living out this fantasy outside of our sightline. I do know that there is that statue of uh, Colin Firth from Pride and Prejudice in, what? like, the lake. <laughs> yeah, but it's not, uh, it's from a scene that never actually happened. Like, it's a misremembered scene where he, like, jumps <laughs> in the lake and is coming out of it. And, like, the lake where they filmed it, they now have, like, a statue of Colin Firth there from the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. It's great. So, I think there's things like that and, like, little, like, one-offs. But, yeah, you know, people don't get together and put on their Edwardian gear but then I go to like see a Downton Abbey movie in the theater and people are on fucking fire. <laughs> like they're so in love with what they're watching. Uh, so I know there's enthusiasm out there. It's just not organized. If they want to make another statue of a character emerging from water, uh, there's a really funny scene in a room with a view where Helen Bottom Carter walks across. She's just on a walk in the woods and she finds um, the man she loves, her younger brother and the town vicar, all naked in a pond, splashing each other and having boy fights. <laughs> she sees all of their dicks. It's very funny. That would make for a great sketch. Yes, this is Venice. Captivating, enchanting Venice. The world's most beautiful city. An inviting place for lovers. Here is one man who should know, for this is his home. And here, at a cafe in the Piazza San Marco, is where it all began. That one completely unforgettable summertime we have all known. This was theirs. Jane's and his. And it started as casually as this. For my welcome back from my forest and family adventures, 
I had everybody watch the 1955 David Lean movie, Summertime, starring Katherine Hepburn and filmed in Technicolor in Venice. Um, this movie is about Katherine Hepburn. She is a older, unmarried secretary who decides to go on vacation looking for love and adventure and the things missing in her life in Venice. Um, she and a man end up meeting, flirting, falling in love, but he's married. So, you know, it's a real conundrum. They still share their romance, and then at the end, she breaks it off and goes back home. I am very, like, into traveling by myself, um, everywhere. So the first time I watched this movie, I was like, wow, this feels like it really captures something about that, like the magic of, and the loneliness of being in an unfamiliar place by yourself. You know, that's exactly what Brittany said when I said we were going to watch this for the episode. She said, oh, this really gave me confidence to like travel to Europe and stuff by myself. Yeah. Um, she, she does vacation a lot more by herself than anyone else I know. Yeah. I was like, wow. Like, not that I've lived this movie, but I've definitely lived similar things to this movie. And yeah, it just, it hits a very deep part of my heart. Also, you know, I just, I love Technicolor. It's gorgeous. God, So there yeah. is that. Uh, what did y'all think of this one? I loved this. I loved it. You know, there have been recent changes in my own social life that were like, ah, yes, you know, this perfect movie about like change and finding love late in life. And there's a feeling of summertime to it. There's a feeling of just like the potential for anything to happen. I loved it. I, as someone who also loves to purchase colored glass, which I know is a very strange <laughs> thing to say, but like that's what I collect as well. I was utterly fascinated by its like presence, oh. the presence of that plot point in this movie. And it's a big one. Remind me to text you a picture of the uh, glass that I just picked up from Tennessee from a family oh, member's right. house. <laughs> anyway, very nice. It is a big plot point. I really enjoyed this. I loved uh, Catherine Hepburn is just so magnetic. You know, like what what can you say other than like you know, you love to watch her. You just love to see her. Her voice is so melodic and she's so charming and pretty and like lovable in this that I really think another actor in here might not really have pulled it off. Because Catherine Hepburn gives it this vulnerability where you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how she could be very wise and have lived very, you know, lived this life, but also like be completely unprepared, you know, for love to find her and to um, initially reject it because it's a form that seems wrong to her, but then, you know, ultimately accepts. Yeah, the movie like almost seems very slight. The impact of what could possibly happen here could only affect so many people so much. But she has such a fragile emotional state that she wants to break out of. Like, she's obviously going to Venice to 
experience new things and to feel new things and to open herself up to new experiences. But man, is it fucking hard for her to do that? And like, like you're saying, she carries that responsibility of the narrative so well that like, it's heartbreaking watching her disappoint herself and watching other people disappoint her, even though she doesn't show it in her tough exterior too much. Like she, she's very like sarcastic and brash and like, brings her own bourbon to the table and makes sure everyone has like a strong American drink to share with her and stuff like that. But like the guy she's into, if he doesn't like sit down at the table in the square where she wants him to like converse with her, her heart snaps in half and you can like almost like Ralph on the Simpsons. You can pinpoint the exact moment where it tears into two. Uh, She's like so vulnerable here to the point where like, I've seen a lot of this people call this movie very slight, where um, I felt like I was on the edge, kind of terrified for her at, in every scene. Yeah, every scene, it feels she's, like like Boomer said, very vulnerable, you know. Yeah. Even in the 50s, like a, a woman traveling alone, and then she's meeting up with this young, kind of sketchy rascal, uh, Mauro. Who smokes cigarettes and sells pornography. Yeah, it sells even pornography. Even though he's like six years old. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so she's like, very vulnerable like she could get like the fleece pulled over on her like at any point in time and she's like alone in the world so yeah there's that tension that you don't find in a lot of melodrama generally not i don't know is this a melodrama that's another term that i feel like is so vague and you have a specific idea of what it is well i I would say this movie feels more like a Douglas Sirk film than it feels like a yes, David Lean movie compared to does. like, I don't know, Bridge Over River Kwai or Whoa. Lawrence of Arabia or whatever. See, the only David Lean movies I've seen are this and Brief Encounter, and they're okay. very similar feeling. But I think in melodrama, at least the way I'm thinking of it, it's like these like small events that mean the world to like one person. Yeah. And like there's a lot of weight put on these like tiny exchanges. Um, and like Definitely. the emotions are soaring and like have the potential to break your heart, even though not a lot is happening. It's all very internal. Yeah. That's at least how I define melodramas for myself. I'm not sure if that's accurate. And they're women's pictures. I mean, that's what they would have been called in the 50s. Yes. um, When this came out. I think this one's very striking for a few different reasons, if that's the genre we're going to be discussing. Like, I I guess there's like two betrayals we need to talk about. One that's legitimate and one that's not. We're like, the, the glass buying... Um, incident she feels like he um, has sold her counterfeit glass uh, that is like not worth what she paid for it just to get one over on the American tourist so like she's opening her heart to this potential Italian beau who um, she feels as if is just like treating her like any other tourist and that like really hurts her and to me that's melodrama like them Mm -hmm. having this like very heart-soaring, heartbreaking exchange over whether or not the glass that she bought was legitimate. Uh, yeah. And then the second betrayal actually is legitimate, which is that he lied about being married and that this movie is like about adultery and like him convincing her to participate in adultery, which is like very against her own moral code. And to me, the way that works out where like she totally fucks this dude and there are no real consequences is extraordinary for a mid-50s film. Yes. Like, you would think someone would get punished for this, but 
it just kind of plays out. Loosen up, baby. It's Europe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. His loosen up speech is so good. It's a ravioli. Uh, the, yeah, it has the <laughs> oh best sex God, euphemism I've ever heard. Eat the ravioli. Mm. His way of convincing her to have sex with him. Love that. Something that like really struck me about this, I mean, besides like how amoral it is about their adultery, like it, it, it really doesn't judge them for it. Um, it, it really just documents how much she judges herself. Another thing that struck me was just like how often we have to emotionally invest in the lives of like teenagers and like 20 somethings who are yes. like not even fully formed people. And she is a middle-aged woman on this vacation mm-hmm. who um, feels like her romantic life has like hit a dead end and it's over. Yeah. And it's like incredibly remarkable how rare that feels. Like it's crazy how little adult actual people are on screen figuring their shit out when that's like <laughs> usually a much more nuanced and relatable, I think, mode of storytelling. It's wild like as you get older i'm in my mid 30s now like thinking about hanging out with like a college age student <laughs> and like yeah. what kind of like an emotional um exchange or like intellectual exchange i could have with that person um and to me that is a child <laughs> and then i think in all the movies i watch most of the people on screen are children or are playing children um in that yeah, context so they're, they're playing like 18 or like 25 year olds and this movie doubles that age and like really invests in her emotional state in a way that felt special. Yeah, I really liked, um, I wrote down an exchange that I loved where she's just like, in America, everybody under 50 calls herself a girl. And then the hotel owner is like, and after? And she's like, who cares? And I'm like, oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Like, yeah. that's Hollywood. I replayed that scene for cat earlier today and by replayed i mean i reenacted it and i used my katherine hepburn voice which uh she pointed out is just my kate mulgrew voice yeah yeah um can you please uh do that voice because it is very similar i always thought like oh man it's a shame like we haven't had like kate mulgrew playing katherine hepburn see in america every every woman under 50 calls herself a girl there's coffee in that nebula yes <laughs> Is that Star Trek? Should I be ringing the bell right now? It is. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I assure you, though, there's been no change in my patrician facade. My heart is breaking. What a lady. Yeah, such a lady. What a lady. Huh. They don't, I, I think they don't make movies like that anymore because they don't make people like, they don't make actresses like uh, Catherine Hepburn anymore. Women in Hollywood aren't allowed to be leads after they're 30. They just get to be moms. Not until they're like 60, and then they're allowed to be leads again. In like yeah. a Meryl Streep kind of way. Maybe it was more of a trope in like 50s, like women's pictures that I'm, that I'm really giving it credit for. Because like I'm thinking of now Joan Crawford, you know, in like a Mildred Pierce type movie or something. Um, yeah. There's like, there's plenty of hurt for her to do that isn't about like adult situations. And yeah, that, that market is just gone now. Uh, and even her and Betty Davis were exploited as they got older. Like they tipped over from that being acceptable into pure hack exploitation. Like, aren't these people freaky? They're so old. I don't want to look at them anymore. So I don't know. Maybe like old Hollywood. Obviously, uh, old Hollywood was bad for a lot of different reasons. But like maybe in this one way, like they were willing to give like older, not older, but like 
you know, fully formed actresses, like, space to be real people on screen. Yeah. You know, I talked about it a while back um, with Douglas Sirk movies, where how many of them are about, you know, older women finding romance as well, since we already, like, brought him up. So, yeah, it feels like there was more of this kind of movie, and there was more of, like, adults finding, like, romance sort of thing. And... I don't know, like, in the now, like, you know, the only movie I could think of, and it is not in the now, is As Good As It Gets. Like, I don't know how many rom-coms about... I mean, they have them. Are. I'm thinking of, like, the uh, crowd that's, like, basically geriatric. Like, uh, the first exotic Marigold Hotel or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, like, something that only old people will watch. Brandon, I'm going to be honest with you. What you're talking about is that Downton Abbey movie. Yeah. <laughs> hey, fair enough. Us. I mean, in that screening, I was probably a third of the age of most people in there. <laughs> but that's not really appealing to a general crowd. Like, this movie, when it came out, would have been just like any other film on the matinee marquee. There would have been nothing differentiating it as a movie for a certain demographic. It was just like a regular romance. And I, I guess the difference between this and the Cirque movies, um, if I'm remembering most of them correctly, is, like, tragic things do happen in those, and, like, yes. a lot of it doesn't work out, and they're kind of weepies, um, which this one really isn't. Like, I, I really expected something very terrible to happen to her, mostly because I was afraid of her, afraid for her at all times. But uh, yeah. the last act is actually rather lovely, and she gets what she wants out of it and then walks away. Yeah, I mean, the worst that happens is she falls in a canal. <laughs> which very embarrassing it's so embarrassing oh my god i love that moments later they diffuse it by having the guy who's reenacting it fall, fall into, into the canal, canal. yes <laughs> very funny just a plus plus physical comedy you know i also love while we're on her like age on screen here uh the one time they like sexualize her body is when the um guy first sees her in the square by herself and just stares at her ankle Ankles, so hard. Yes. She has one exposed ankle and uh, he is just like locked in. Yep. <laughs> Fetishizing yeah. it. He's like, oh. Nice oh, gams. Like that. <laughs> that is a compliment. Nice gams that I literally got on the street my first year living here. So, you know, I, that's another moment I felt very deeply. <laughs> weird. <laughs> so weird. Uh, I want to talk about how Kolchak is in this movie. <laughs> I was like, that man is so handsome. I know I've seen him before. And then it cut to him again, and it was Darren McGavin. I was like, oh, because it's Kolchak. Is this the painter, or is it a different person? Yes, the painter. Okay. The painter whose who's, um, wife is Mrs. Lonely Hearts. Because he's, <laughs> he's, he's no good. He's no good. He's no good. I do like their moment of like drunk girl solidarity. At the bar. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, this yeah. This is my life. It's a basket of stale potato chips. Would you like one? <laughs> Love it. Loved it. Loved her camera. Loved her whenever Morrow, the little boy, is like, I'll see you again, right? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> sure, kid. <laughs> Yeah, kiddo. He's like, oh, you'll come back from America someday. And she's like, mm, Being a big, sure. strong senora. I do like how much of this is just about Americans as tourists. Yes. She's like, I don't want to be mistaken for the other tourists. <laughs> yeah. And they are awful. Like, 
Bonjourno, a reaver, Darchi. <laughs> like uh-huh. they are really grating. And his like racist yes! statement about the food. Yes. And oh the God. lady is like, mm, I don't have to put up with that. And it gets right how vacations kind of feel, where like, even though Venice is really beautiful on camera here, uh, the first hour that she's there is like really chaotic. Uh, just like getting her luggage to the hotel and like all these bells and horns going off and these loud fucking Americans. Yeah. Uncultured swine on the uh, the boat ride with her. And, they, you know, they end up being at the same hotel, which is kind of like a fuck moment. She doesn't seem to mind. Yeah, no, for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, there's bells going off in the um in the square, which is like, I guess, part of the magic of the city. But. I don't know, it's just a very loud, chaotic movie for like the first hour before she really settles in her one-on-one romance with the shop owner. It really does effectively capture the disorientation of of being in a European country, yeah. I will say. Yeah. Because ev- there's plazas everywhere, and sometimes the allo- alleys are very wide, and sometimes they're very narrow, and you're never really sure where you're going until you get there, and you're like, oh, okay, this is where we were headed to this this yeah. indistinguishable because uh, you know whenever uh, people just know where everybody's houses are she's just like oh i'm staying at the you know pensione and he's like oh yeah i know where it is how <laughs> why <laughs> <laughs> why would he know about this one particular boarding house that seems to only house four people that makes it seem like maybe he's lying about how many times he's had this kind of affair before yeah oh Mm, I hadn't considered that. Yeah, so the other line that made me uh, think that was uh, when he was talking about how, you know, Venetians used the same mold for thousands of years over and over again. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, using the same lies. He's got a pattern. Yeah, but I think at a certain point, he, like, changes his tune, you know? Like, I want to believe that... Once he's like, oh, wow, you're always surprising me, is when he was truly like, oh, wait, this isn't just another, like, American with nice legs. I can pull the wool over her eyes. And if it wasn't for that lie that he kind of has to tell to get anything going, like, I don't know. It's not like he's doing anything bad. He just has these, like, short-lived romances with people who, like, sort of float through Venice. No pun intended. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not like these are, like, disastrous exchanges if they all work out this exact way. Like, you know, it's really lovely for a time, and then it's time ends, and it's over. And there's nothing really, like, wrong with that. I don't think the movie judges that either. That's summertime. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it's for. <sighs> I don't know, like, how y'all feel about... Because so much of this movie does just kind of also make you a tourist like i don't know how y'all felt about like all the cinematography of venice everywhere and how so much of the movie just seems to be like look at the buildings and the historic stuff frankly i'm really into it because i wonder how much of that stuff is around and in that shape in a city that is so affected by climate change first off yeah i really like the scene where she eventually finds herself down by the water after drinking and she's looking at like the lion heads under the water and like one yeah. of them has like a piece of detritus on it. And it yes. is sort of like she got off of this boat with this expectation of Venice being this like magical, miracle place. 
And, you know, as soon as she walks up to the hotel and she's like, oh, um, you know, it's so lovely. Uh, immediately someone's like throwing flowers in the water. I thought that was just straight up trash. Oh, I it seemed to me like she was looking up at like a balcony where there were flowers and then she looked away and then someone had just tossed the old flowers in the canal. But if it's just trash, that makes it even more like, yeah, exactly. Or like just kitchen people, scraps. Like, people just throw their garbage into the water. Like it's not, it's not a mystical, magical place. It's a place where real people live and, you know, they live the way they live. And that's just the way it is, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of people probably have that feeling when they come to New Orleans at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a playground and, yeah. like, not a real city. It's, like, dirty Disney World. It's, like, I don't know. It's also a functional place. I live here. <laughs> you know, I go to work every day. Yeah. I will say, like, I'm not well-traveled at all. Like, I've driven more places than I've flown, and I've never left the country before in my entire life. Wow. Oh my God. Is this the beginning of like Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, but it's like <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Lede goes to Pompeii. I don't know. Oh, you know, I love that. I would love to go to Paris if I could get a Dior dress as well. Like <laughs> I think I would, uh, I would make the trip for that. I almost watched the Angela Lansbury version of that film, which I have collected and planned to watch in order to prepare for this podcast because I keep I, I kind of wanted to do a gag where I just kept saying that I had watched like naming a, a film that has had a recent remake but then revealing that I watched the Angela Lansbury original <laughs> so I, I have both um, Death on the Nile and Mrs. Aris Goes to Paris lined up although now I've revealed the gag to you and therefore it won't work but uh, you know I thought about it and that's the thought that counts but I do kind of use movies as a way to transport myself like it's a very affordable way to see and experience things that i have not done because of like money and time and i don't know my tendency is more to nest than it is to explore uh, which i really need to fight in myself yeah i mean you've come to the wrong people yeah to, you to have convince you all indoor to kids fight. yeah <laughs> i love traveling and going on my own adventures but i mean I live with Thomas, and the most of the reason why I do go travel alone is he doesn't want to go anywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I'll go by myself. I don't care. It's an ambition of mine to get out there at some point. Yeah. Before I die, I would like to see more than just the southeastern portion of America. I've been a few other places, I was but say, honestly, you, that's you most of where I've been. You came to see me. It wasn't for me, but you you were up here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I went to, um, just before COVID, I went to California and Portland within like maybe a month or two of each other, and it was the first time I'd been that far west, and I, I needed to go more places. It was a little bit longer before COVID than you're remembering, but yes. Not to not to parse the details of your life. Maybe the, but... sum maybe the summer before. Because you had gone whenever I recorded the first time with you and Brittany about the Downton Abbey movie in September 2019, <laughs> which I was thinking about while we were talking about it. So, uh, you know, that was the first time I ever participated in the podcast. We were talking about that. You had just gone because... Um, I was there for the follow-up to that event. Right, right, right. Right, right. So, sorry, there was a point in me being needlessly pedantic. Uh, there was a there was a gag in there. Sorry. <laughs> I am only telling time in terms of Downton Abbey movies from now on. Yes. <laughs> it was like a third of a Downton Abbey sequel, you know? Um, but I really do appreciate 
when movies put in like place details like this because I, you know, have never been to Venice and it was really nice to see it so lovingly shot. And actually the timing of this episode is very good because I think Criterion just put out this movie on like 4K Blu-ray this week. Oh man. Um, so I imagine, you know, it was really nice on the TV streaming off their channel, but mm-hmm. I imagine on that like Blu-ray it's like even more crisp and like colorful and everything else. Also, I don't know, having Venice like this is so interesting to me because so many of the movies I've seen with Venice featured, it's been spooky. You know, you have things like Don't Look Now. You have things like uh, Argento's Inferno. I mean, even in the show Discovery of Witches, Venice is like portrayed as like you know this haven for like vampires and stuff. Like, it's nice to see it as like a summery like fun interesting like vacation place you know yeah it's my second favorite depiction of venice after the league of extraordinary gentlemen oh see i forgot about that one yeah yeah where he's driving a car around the not yet sunk canals yeah so i i don't know it's nice for me to see it because number one like i said like how many of these buildings are there how many of these places because i know like more and more of the city is like sunk now just What's the deal over there? If you want to compare it to the like tourism aspects of New Orleans too, like the appeal of it as a destination is that it doesn't really change. At least there are like parts of downtown New Orleans that are not supposed to change. Yeah. But uh, there's always people who want to change it to make a dollar. So uh, there's always like an internal fight there. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who want to like structurally revamp Venice to like ensure that it, keeps bringing in tourist money and like survives flooding. But at the same time, it's like, if you change it too much, it's no longer special. And it's just like every other modern city. So that's really tough is like how much effort you put into like bringing something quote unquote up to date versus like leaving that like old world charm to it. Cause every time I watch a, you know, a European set movie like this, I always think of how much the French quarter looks like that already. Like it's like, it, it feels like weirdly familiar to me. So I, I was just thinking about the ways that they're, they're the same and how neither of them change very quickly. <laughs> they they don't adapt to the times. And you know, New Orleans will sink into the Gulf. Yeah. Uh, eventually. Much like Venice I was going to say, there's a lot of similarities <laughs> between New Orleans and Venice in that. Like I've never been, I want to go so bad. I've been to New Orleans, but I've never been to Venice, but I hear similar things to it that I've heard about New Orleans. Like, Oh, it stinks so bad. Oh, it's sinking. <laughs> oh, there's, it's, there's a lot of tourists, but it's actually, you know, not that great. It's kind of shabby. And I'm like, you know, this this all sounds familiar. The last time a hurricane hit, I, I guess it was like last October, maybe. Uh, I was watching a movie the night before it was supposed to arrive. I think it was called Reminiscence. And it was the sci-fi movie set maybe like 30, 40 years into the future. And um, both New Orleans and Miami were like underwater and had like Venice style um, street transportation uh, in the little alleys between the buildings. People were just like on little boats. And I was like, oh, okay, this is really uh, poor timing on my part. Because <laughs> this really does feel like the near future right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Because, um, I mean, at some point in New Orleans history, there were a lot of canals that you could go down by boat to get places. So <laughs> at yeah. some point that did happen. But, yeah. Well, I'm very glad we watched this. I, I have seen people 
describe it as like a slight movie as if it's like a trifle but i really i found the emotions very big the performance from uh, Catherine hepburn is like astonishingly vulnerable and like you're rooting for her so hard throughout and uh, i don't know the city's beautiful and um the movie's not judgmental about the like marital taboos it breaks and no one gets punished for the transgression which it feels very special like it's a very special film even though it, it does have like small stakes in a lot of ways yeah i yeah i figured we needed like kind of a magical summer movie (laughs) i needed this in my life and i'm very grateful that it came along just when it did well the last four or five episodes we've had have all been criterion channel picks and i'm gonna break that up i uh i want to (laughs) start talking about some like newer films so maybe the next couple episodes we're gonna talk about new releases from 2022 Next time, I wanted everyone to watch RRR, which has been on Netflix for a while, and I think one of the best movies of the year. And yet, so far, very few Swamp Flicks people have seen it. I think it's really just me and Allie. Yeah, I think Um, you're right. It's so good, though. So, if you are timid about getting into, like, Indian action cinema, even though I talk about it fairly regularly on here, it's a great gateway film to that genre. Um, It hits all the same pleasure centers as uh ali was describing with like you know predator and rambo and like a lot of those 80s american films but it's innovative and new and it's so easily available it's right there on netflix so we're gonna talk about rrr next week and um i had everyone else select something from the first half of this year just so we can catch up on some new releases uh so we're gonna talk about fresh which is on hulu and we're all going to the world's fair which is on hoopla and also Vortex, the dementia drama starring Dario Argento, which um, we actually had to pay to rent, uh, which is like a $6 rental. But Argento's name has come up a few times today, so I feel like it's worth highlighting that one as well. Who's that? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you would really know I had been replaced by a robot. <laughs> it was like, I love Star Wars. Who's Dario Argento? <laughs> You couldn't see it, but I was doing the Donald Sutherland uh, body snatchers point as soon as. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we'll talk to you all about some new releases coming up and check out uh, swampflix.com in the meantime. I'm sure I'm writing about something, whatever it is. Probably a lot of costume dramas. Bye, everybody. Bye. Good night, everybody. Bye.